Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We've got a great show today. We've got Stephen Dunn. He's an attorney and a counselor, but we're not going to talk about law. He's been involved in law since 1984, and he started the Dunn Law Firm back in June of 1993, and is concentrated in complex civil litigation all across the Texas state courts. But he's done a lot more important. Not that that's not important. That is. But he's done some really important things. He founded the Morgan Foundation and Project Hill back in January of 2017. And the Morgan Foundation has a mission statement that includes raising funds for scientific research into the biological causes of eating disorders and to implement change in state and federal laws pertaining to eating disorders. Project Hill has assembled a medical board of advisors, corporate board of advisors, fundraising and mentorship committees. And that's really trying to help generate grant funding for people that are afflicted with eating disorders and cannot afford treatment. So, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Lee, what an absolute pleasure it is to be to be with you today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And, and you know, your story it touches the heart. It still touches my heart every time I think about it. And I've learned about it a few years ago. So if, if you would just be transparent and, and share your motivation and your drive with the audience, it would be appreciated. Sure. <clears throat> sure. Absolutely. Um, for most of my life, you know, you're always taught, at least my generation, I'm 60 years old, go, going on 12. Um, you know, we're taught you work hard and you stay in school, you make a grade, you get a good job. And eventually you have the nice house and the beautiful wife and the white picket fence around the uh, house, of course, and 2.3 kids and life is great. Um, unfortunately, there are some people like me who that type of life just doesn't quite fit too well. You know, did find a great uh, wife, and Martha and I are still good friends. We did get divorced, but um, we had two great kids, uh, my son, Hanford, and my daughter, Morgan. Morgan, unfortunately, was too much like her dad. She was impulsive and intelligent and emotional, and unfortunately, she had some of her dad's flaws as well. So we noticed beginning about her sophomore year in high school that her eating was off and she isolated more. And finally, a couple of her friends at uh, the school she was in at the time came to us and said, we're really concerned. Um, she's throwing up after lunch, you know, that sort of thing. So we consulted with doctors and counselors at the time, and they took blood, and she, we were told she had an eating disorder. And, of course, we had no, we had no idea what that was was and did some research, but back then it still really wasn't well known, of course. Um, in fact, her first time to a 24-hour treatment center was three days before her spring break. And we naively thought, okay, she's going to be in this program for three days. 
and then all week for next week during spring break. And she'll get out after that and she'll have the tools that she needs to get back on track. How incredibly naive we were. I so wish at the time that someone had sat down with us, looked us in the eyes and said, Mr. Mrs. Dunn, you need to be afraid. You need to be very afraid because your daughter has a mental illness that has the second highest mortality rate out of all of them. No one sat down and, and, and talked to us about that. So that started about a seven-year run of getting her in different treatment centers and seeing doctors and counselors. Um, the last two years of, uh, of her life, she lived exclusively with me, and I took her to doctors. And finally, um, in October of 2016, took her into Presbyterian Hospital again. She had been there a number of times, and she didn't come out this time. At 11.31 on October 30th, 2016, while I was holding her hand, she breathed her last. And for a parent who's lost the most important thing to them, you know, we would gladly give up our own lives for our kids. It's an anguish that can't even be described. Well, um, and of course, while she was in the grip of her disease, she isolated from all of her friends. So Martha and I were wondering, how are we going to even have a service? Nobody's going to show up. And we still had it at the Cox Chapel Highland Park Methodist Church. And by the way, they were absolutely phenomenal in helping us get through you know, those very hard times. So the day of her celebration of life arrived and walk into Cox Chapel and it's standing room only. People had flown in, young women she was in treatment with had flown in from throughout the United States to be there for her. And I finally understood why. When I started to read the journals that she wrote when she was away in treatment, one of the things she wrote, Lee, was, I can seem to help everyone else. I just can't save myself. And so with that, the mission for the Morgan Foundation was, was born. And in the last uh, four years or so, we have gone on this crusade to try to bring positive change to a community and industry that is, is very fractured right now. Um, to lead to a certain extent, I guess I'm looked upon as kind of a rainbow unicorn out there because unfortunately a lot of dads back then did not get involved in family counseling and treatment. And if their child does die, they don't become a strong advocate. Well, now you have this, uh, you know, wacky hair on fire dad slash attorney with 36 years of experience in courtrooms. And he's beginning to see things that are very uncomfortable. And the entire time kids are continuing to die. Um, uh, <clears throat> a report came out on, on June 24th of this year called the Deloitte Economic Report. It was funded by the Academy for Eating Disorders and striped out, out of Harvard University. It was the first comprehensive report done in the United States on eating disorders. 
by an objective third party. And, this and when was it done? Excuse me. It's the first report done. And when was it done? It was released on June 24th of this year. Wow. And it was the first you know, comprehensive report done by an independent third party group on eating disorders in the United States. And the statistics are far worse than everyone thought. Um, this report disclosed that once every 52 minutes, someone dies as a direct result of an eating disorder. That takes my breath away. That's about 10,200 deaths per year. So during this um, podcast, this talk we're having, one person will die. And it is, it's, it is such a misunderstood, a misdiagnosed disease. And the industry and community seem to be at loggerheads a little bit as to how best to treat this disease. Well, I can speak for the general public and say there's just there's no information that the knowledge there are so many myths and misconceptions about eating disorders. You know, I've had a mother say to me, well, you know, it's just about control. It is all about control. And my response to that, not really knowing a whole lot, was no, I don't think so. And it's not about thinking I'm too fat either. There's a whole lot more to it. And I think that, you know, I, I can't imagine the misunderstandings that are the myths that you were told in trying to understand what was going on with, with your daughter. Absolutely. And, you know, Lee, in fact, a lot of people think that it's a, it's a recent ph phenomenon brought on by television and, you know, body images on TV and that sort of thing. But that's not the case. There are Egyptian hieroglyphics going back to 2500 BC that shows uh, people purging as a way to maintain their health back then. Um, we know around the time of Christ, the Romans were having uh, lavish banquets and they would gorge themselves so much they would go outside, throw up and come back to the uh, fe feast. Um, anorexia was first um, Penn was first named um, in 1873 in England. So eating disorders have been around a long time. Um, and you're right, there are so many myths about it. For example, it, as you said, a lot of people think it's merely a control type thing. Well, we now know that it is a complex biological, genetic uh, disease with, uh, so, with social components involved as well. You know, taking up the, uh, the theme of your show, our research doctors now know the, or believe they know, the areas of the brain that are influenced and impacted by different types of eating disorders. Um, so there's that type of research going on as well. There, um, when my daughter died, uh, I knew the doctors over at UT Southwestern, and they, um, I had them come over, and they took little slices of her brain and skin and blood. And the report they told me was that 
she basically had this high-risk gene in her brain. And when the oxytocin levels reached a certain level in her brain, it, was, it would be more difficult to raise the levels and regulate it. And my understanding was that when the oxytocin levels are low, a person tends to isolate more, to be more anti-social. And the only way that eating disorders can exist is they exist in the shadows, in isolation. So when you have that, that high-risk gene in your brain, it makes it recovery that much more difficult. So we know the brain is involved. Uh, Lee, another myth is the genetic aspect, and that's, that's something we're, in the past five years, we're getting so much more understanding about that, largely due to Dr. Cynthia Bulick out in uh, the University of North Carolina. She's doing some great genetic work out there. Um, she gave me a statistic, I believe it was her, Doc, I hope it, I ho hope it was you, but uh, <laughs> apparently um, a, pers a, a woman has a 27% ch uh, chance genetically of acquiring breast cancer if her mom had it. With eating disorders, if you have it in your family, there's a 74% chance that you could be impacted. Wow. Now, when you say eating disorders, we, you mentioned anorexia and bulimia. Are they the only eating disorders? No. In, in the latest D, DSM-5, I think there are actually eight. The ones that are usually um, discussed as the most common ones are anorexia nervosa, and that's really the one that most people think about, uh, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder. And then there are others that are less well-defined. They really were defined for the first time in 2013. Um, up until that point, they had been grouped together as eating disorders not otherwise spe specified. So um, it's we're looking at different eating disorders almost on a spectrum now and each one is is unique and different and impacts the brain in different ways as well so, so one thought that that i've always had is that eating disorders is just about girls and it, i've recently i saw somewhere that it's not it's about the male and female Absolutely. In fact, this Deloitte economic report, they, it, it went into that as well and said about 66 percent of the persons afflicted with eating disorders are girls and women. So that means you know, about one third are boys and men. And eating dis disorders can start as early as five years old. And it impacts people, you know, even those 80 years old and above. And I'm sure that society a lot, a lot of times has looked upon this as a little rich white girl's disease because, you know, that's, that's what you see. That's what the movies have been made about. But it's not. It impacts every race. 
race, every gender, every socioeconomic uh, group. Um, yes, certainly anorexia is more prevalent with Anglos, but bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder are just as prevalent with Hispanic um, uh, Hispanics and uh, African Americans, though. So we're, we're spanning everyone here. Um, we also see that it has a disproportionate impact in the um, LBGTQ community as well. The percentages are noticeably high, higher with uh, the LBGTQ community. So it spans everyone. Well, you know, we've mentioned the brain a couple of times, and, you know, eating, to me, addiction is addiction, and addiction is a brain disease. It is not making bad choices. It is a brain disease, and, you know, sometimes when we think of addictions, we only think of heroin or sugar or alcohol, but some people, this is a question, aren't some people able to get addicted to food? Yeah. Well, yes, because it, it also pertains to endorphins. And what we now know when a person starves, starves themselves, they can have that endorphin release, that endorphin rush in, in the brain that you get from using alcohol or drugs. So... There, yes, there is. And what complicates eating disorders as well, that I, I believe this statistic is 70% of the time, there's some other comorbid illness involved, be it depression or anxiety or addiction or tra trauma. So you're looking at a very complex disease with so many interwoven elements. Um, Unfortunately, you know, there, are, there are only two pres prescription drugs that have been approved by the FDA to treat eating disorders. But when you have depression or anxiety or trauma involved, then you start to get more pharmaceutical intervention. And how does that impact the, the brain, of course, as well? And it, it, it really is just this incredibly complex mix that, unfortunately, the medical profession, for the most part, up to now, has ignored. Um, well, you th do you think they've ignored it because they haven't realized how serious it is? I mean, it's from what you said, it's deadly. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah, as you know, as, as I said, it has behind um, opioid addiction. It's it's the second. It's got the second highest mortality rate out of all mental illnesses. One of the reasons why it is perhaps the most misdiagnosed uh, disease or condition is because I found research that indicates in an average three-year uh, medical school training program, three years, there's on average one hour of training on eating disorders. Our young doctors today on average, are getting one hour of training on eating dis 
orders. So for anyone who listens to this broadcast, if it lasts an hour, congratulations, you're getting the same amount of training that the average young doctor gets when they're in med school. And that's just, that has to change. That leaves me speechless. That absolutely leaves me speechless because where does where does it start? It starts with prevention, and where does prevention start with the understand knowledge, right? Absolutely, and and it's it's so incredibly important that our pediatricians be trained to recognize eating disorders. And you know, part of the issue is if blood is taken. Um, uh, potassium levels that are off or sodium levels are off or magnesium that that is off could indicate uh, binging and purging or restricting, but they can also be indications of other things as well. So you have to have a doctor who is up to speed on, on what eating disorders look like. And Lee, a lot of times you get a kid coming into your um, your doctor's office, and they don't look like they have an eating disorder. In fact, there are some people who society has, has deemed, you know, I understand that the term obese is no longer favored being being used, and there's a push on to get rid of uh, the B BMI as an objective standard, but People who we would look upon as, let's say, being as being fat, they could still have an anorexia. So the complexities we're really just now beginning to get our, our, our arms around. And Lee, you know, a lot of it is, I think, is is because the eating disorder community and industry have not known how to open the doors of large corporations and talk to them the way that you know, corporations have their own language, their own way of phrase, phrasing things. They haven't had the ability to go in and, and say, let me help you help your employees. And fortunately, with, with the length of time I practice law, I've represented numerous corporations. Well, um, in February of this year, Along with Dr. Stephanie Settler from the Eating Recovery Center, I gave a talk at Raytheon. Well, they've got about 70,000 employees, and it was broadcast on their internal network. On September 30th, Dr. Settler and I are giving a talk to Apple, and it's going to be broadcast on their North American internal um, system they have. On their latest tax form, they listed 137,000 employees. So what an opportunity we have to finally um, get the word out to, to corporations that can perhaps make a di difference. And that's really what we need here. Well, we certainly need more than just individual attention, although, you know, it has to start, it has to start with that because so many people will say, oh, you know, you're not – all skinny people are anorexic, you know, or overweight people just don't have any willpower. And to me, they're missing the whole foundation. It's biological. You had you pointed out that there's some social and emotional components of it, which, you know, it's the brain, mind, body connection. 
so certainly that's all involved. But if if people can hear it from where they work, or if they hear it from a coworker, or if you know, if, and if it makes them stop and think about, well, well, gee, you know, I never really thought that was serious. Nobody ever, you know, oh, she's, it's a phase she's going through, you know, she'll grow out of it. She just thinks she's fat. She's 13. Um, and I think that we've got to, we've got to get the word coming out in a more official way. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that it's going to be one of the more difficult things to address as well. We know that weight stigma is an important part of the process as well. If you have a child, an adolescent, you know, even an adult. You know, the jokes about being fat, the you know, the 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 putting them down, the name calling, has such a detrimental impact as a society we've got to find a better way. We've got to find a way to address that because research now is able to tie to weight stigma into bulimia and binge eating disorder. So I, I, I know there are some really good groups out there that are trying to raise awareness about how insidious weight stigma is and how it contributes to a, a worsening e eating disorders. Well, you know, and you make a good point because I've seen a, a big shift in advertising. I see a lot of more plus size models advertising, um, and I think that's a very positive statement. It, you know, it used to be Twiggy. You know, you had to be a size zero zero, but now we're seeing plus size models, and they're absolutely beautiful, and they're making they're making it well known that it's not just about your body size. It's, it really should be about your health. And what I look forward to is, you know, when I talk with you and the things that you're doing, you're creating change. You're creating change, not just at a ground level where you definitely have created a lot of change, but you're taking that up to the organizational level. And that's where you make things happen. Absolutely. And for me, it's, Lee, I just, I, I just don't think I have a choice. It's, it's, you know, when your soul finds you, and you know, my soul found me through me having to go through the most painful thing a, a, a dad can do. When your soul finds you and its purpose is made clear, you have no choice but to stay on that path. Um, you know, and. We all react to tragedies in different ways. And I know we're, we're going to go to break here soon and um, would like to talk a little bit about how people respond to tragedies and just some of the things the foundation has done. And some, uh, I've met some incredible, incredible, some great friends um, who have joined hands with me and are on this path. Well, I think that, you know, is would be excellent to come back and talk about it because you're right. Everybody experiences trauma on a different score. You know, there's a great book, The Body Keeps Score, and it's not just about what's going on in your brain or whether are you sad, are you depressed, are you anxious. It's There's so much to learn. When we come back, we'll hear more. We'll be back after these messages. 
Would you like to know how to bring more ease to all the decisions you need to make in life? Knowing your core values is the first step in Joyce's free live masterclass. You'll discover your top five core values in as little as 45 minutes. Join her now at freegiftfromjoyce.com. have a lot of spizzerinctum or the will to win, and you have a strong desire to be a part of your favorite sports team, the National Hockey League might be for you. Did you know that if both goalies on an NHL hockey team are injured, anyone at the game is eligible to step in and play the part? Teams have resorted to using their coaches, team owners, and even their web designers to fill in for injured goalies. It's as simple as slipping into your breezers or hockey pants. The original hockey puck was made out of frozen cow dung. The fastest puck shot on record was clocked at 114 miles per hour. And I'd like to take this opportunity to send out a special thanks to the men and women of our armed forces serving our country around the world. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. You know, we were talking about how everyone's different and how everybody experiences things differently. So talk to me some more about that. <laughs> Lee, yeah, and, and, you know, in fact, um, I guess I was the atypical, typical sole practitioner attorney, was more concerned about his work, and boy, that's how I'm going to leave my mark on society and then life happened, of course. And after Morgan died, I had a really good friend give me a card that said, when a person is faced with an unspeakable tragedy, one of three things tends to occur. It either destroys them, it defines them in a negative way, or it gives them incredible inspiration and strength. I, I don't think we get to choose which of the three paths we're on. We all react to pain differently. We all react to fear differently. I'm fortunate in that uh, I became inspired by the things that Morgan wrote and the things that her friend she was in treatment with said about her, how she inspired them to get help, to get well, and who would I be if I let that type of mission, that strength, just go? So I have a chance to establish a legacy that was cut off for her. But if in her name I can start to do some work, then you know, that that is something that will give me peace. So... Um, through a, a friend, I got to meet Elisa Myers. She's the executive director of the Academy for Eating Disorders, AED. AED is the world's largest eating disorder organization, and it numbers professors and nonprofit doctors from not just the United States, but around the wor world as well. And I've gotten to know a number of them. and. Unfortunately, sometimes the stereotype about a university professor is very true. They're brilliant. 
but they wouldn't know how to raise funds if their life depended uh, on it. So I'm going to be helping to uh, get a development committee started up for them where we can go out to large corporations and politicians and raise funds for them. And we'll be able to tell them, these are what your funds are going for. They're going for this genetic study. They're going for this brain study. They're going to, uh, col uh, to collaborate with the treatment centers out there so we can finally get some generally accepted standards of care in place that can be taught in medical schools so our young doctors will be able to recognize what exactly they're looking at here. But we've got to find a way to get collaboration in uh, community and, and industry that is so fractured right now. Um, and when I say eating disorder community, I'm referring to the uh, nonprofit organizations and the ad the advocates out there, you know, uh, the par parents groups. When I refer to the industry side of it, I'm talking about the treatment centers and the treatment centers that are owned by private equity firms and the research doctors. Well, of course. I've discovered that the research doctors don't get along too well with the treating doctors and the treating doctors and the research doctors don't get along too well with the advocates and organizations. And so you, we've got this mess. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes the image of the messenger becomes greater than the power of the me me message. And we're doing everything we can to, to try to get people to emphasize, emphasize how powerful the message is and how we need to collaborate to save lives so we don't have another report that shows one of our kids dying every 52 min, minutes. Um, we know it was last week. It was National Suicide. Per it was a day last week that was National Suicide Prevention. And I can't tell you, I had three of my younger clients mention that to me. And I thought I was, I was so happy. So I asked them, I said, so what do you do? And, and all three of them gave me the, the National Suicide Hotline number, and they knew it. Is this something that's, that is a, an effort underway, or, or do you think that's something that, that could happen, that people had a place to call if they, were, if they thought they were suffering? Uh, yes, and, and there are organizations and, and numbers to call. For example, the uh, National Eating Disorder Association has been around um, oh, for over 25 years. They have a call-in line, uh, an 800 number that, that anyone can call in, talk to someone, and they can get a referral that way. Uh, I, I did read in the USA Today that the National Eating Disorder Association and other groups um, indicated that calls to their hotlines during the time of COVID-19 have increased by 80%. Wow. Yeah, and there are other groups as well. Um, the Texas Eating Disorder Asso Association here in North Texas, I believe, have a hotline as well. There are numerous um treating doctors I know out there, for example, uh, Girls to Women um, Health and Wellness Center was started by a friend of mine 
Dana Rubin Reamer, uh, their counselors, I believe almost all of them are cer certified to treat eating disorders, to recognize it. Uh, anyway, and so there are groups out there, but they're living in these bubbles and they need to find a way to market and advertise to get the word out so much more. And again, part of that is we need to get our medical doctors, our pediatricians, much more on board with recognizing the symptoms and taking uh, appropriate early steps. Because if you get an eating disorder at an early phase, you're much more likely to be able to overcome it. Once so you keep going but you keep going back to the to the doctors and I think that's you know that's who parents listen to if I I had two boys and if I took them into the doctor and and the doctor said something you know he always says well how's her diet but never much more than that um, and if if he or she could have just put a section in in there, but not house or diet, but how do they feel about eating? You know, do they eat on a regular basis? Um, because my kids, one would not eat breakfast, one would not eat dinner. I never thought anything about it, and thank thank God, I didn't have to. Mm -hmm. And yes, absolutely. That's that's where the training for doctors needs to be um, increased dramatically. I you know I I just recalled one thing that it was at the very start um morgan was seeing a m movie with a friend and her health was so compromised she walked out uh fainted fell she refractured her jaw a little bit in the emer emergency room um the er doc pulls me inside says steve there's a, a a little problem with morgan's blood I'm thinking, oh, Lord, they found cocaine or meth or alcohol or something in her blood. She was uh, 15 at, at the time. He said her potassium level is really off. And I went, okay, what does that mean? He said, well, that's an indicator, a sign that she is anorexic, also that she's been pur purging. And my initial thought was, oh, thank God, it's they didn't find drugs or something more ser serious. So um, I just, um, if we had more doctors like him, and we eventually will, then there are going to be a lot fewer kids who have a mom and dad left behind. So, well, you know, and what do you think of what do you think about the schools? Because, and I mean, schools are in a very different situation right now. But the school nurse, are, are the school nurses educated? It, you know, and what do you look for? How do you identify an eating disorder? Lee, you know, in fact, last August, uh, along with uh, Dr. Tyler Wooten, he's a psychiatrist working in an eating disorder treatment center here in town. Um, we gave a talk to approximately 50 nurses and counselors employed by the Dallas uh, Catholic Di Diocese. 
and we gave them information what to look for, um, how it manifests its, itself. And of course, you know, I was told that had never been done before. Um, I know that Ur Ursuline Academy, where Morgan went, they have a program I think they present to their teachers and counselors every year on eating disorders, what to look for. And I'm trying to get into a number of other schools as well to educate counselors and nurses as to signs and symptoms and behavior to look for that could be indicative. So inroads are being made, but not nearly fast enough. I do know the Texas Eating Disorder Association, which used to be, uh, they were used to call the EMILY program here in town. They do some great work. They've been out uh, to a number of schools. I believe they have um, documents and resource materials that they send to counselors at school. school. So you know, they've done a very good job at opening those doors, of course. Um, so some inroads are being made, but not nearly enough and not in the poor, poorer schools, the minority schools, the schools that are largely uh, African-American and Hispanic. Those schools are being, for the most part, ignored. But as we talked about before, bul bulimia and binge eating disorders are just as prevalent as well, and and weight stigma is just as prevalent in those schools as they are in the Anglo-based schools. So it's it's you know there are numerous issues and problems that need to be addressed. But as Albert Einstein once said, if he's given an hour to solve a problem. He's going to think about the problem for 55 minutes and then think about possible solutions for five. So we're still identifying all the problems that exist. So you talked about the education that you did with school nurses and school counselors. Would it be different than what you would talk about with just the general public? Well, yes and no. The, some, the parts that would be the same would be emphasizing that our teachers and counselors spend as much time, if not more time, with our kids than we as par parents do. And we know, especially in the public schools, they've gotten 30-plus kids in a, in a classroom at times. How are they going to possibly be able to see the, some of the subtle signs that exist? But, you know, Lee, they do exist. And, and this goes for either teachers and counselors or moms and dads. Some of the things you can look for are, um, is your kid all of a sudden beginning to isolate a bit more, especially after they eat at home? Are they immediately going to their room afterwards? Um, friends they've had for the long time, are they beginning to drop out of those groups? Um, look at the way they eat. Is it they have a big plate full of food and not appropriate size portions, of course? You know, you've got to be very aware of that. But also they have to keep in mind that many 
people with eating disorders are incredibly intelligent. And I know with my daughter, she would do things like if she knew she was being weighed, she would water load at home right before she went. We went to the doctor. So she would drink a bunch of water to try to put a little bit of weight on so she can say, see, it's not that bad. Um, I've heard stories about some young women taking a roll of coins and wrapping it up in a plastic bag and putting it in a certain part of their anatomy right before they're weighed just to try to manipulate the system a little bit. So, but what does that say to you? You know, to me that says that they, they they want to weigh more. They don't want to be, they don't want to weigh what they weigh. What does that well, say to you? Well, it, it, it says to me that, that the young people, kids, adolescents, and even adults who have had eating disorders so long, they and they've been to treatment centers and doctors, they almost become institutionalized. They know what counselor questions the counselors and doctors are going to say. They know what answers to give. They know how to manipulate the system. And they don't, the only thing they trust is their eating disorder. For a lot of of our young people, they manifest their eating disorder as it almost becomes their friend. They take the eating disorder and they personalize it. And the eating disorder lies to them. In their brain, they hear the voices of their eating disorder which state, I'm your only friend, you can trust in me. While everyone else betrays you or your friends talk back to you, I'll never do that to you. It's a very seductive voice within their head that once it gets its claws into them, it's so hard to break that cycle. So it's almost the devil I know is better than the devil I don't know. Yes, absolutely. You know, because they can't trust mom and dad because mom and dad maybe fight all the time or they got divorced or maybe they can't trust their friend anymore because she's going out with a boy who's not good enough for her or they got in a big fight. Or this other friend talked to them about their food intake or told their mom and dad so in their mind every, you know, everyone has in some way betrayed them except for their voice in their brain. And, of course, as the brain atrophies – you don't have the ability to think in a logical, methodical way. You know, another thing you hear is it's not about the food or it's all about the food. And you, well, yes, it is all about the food because the food needs to feed the brain. The, the brain needs the nutrients that it can only get from food. And if you don't feed the brain, it's going to start to atrophy. And once that occurs, it, it's, it's so hard to get them back. And, of course, we don't know what – I'm sorry. Go Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, food is so basic. You know, I do neurofeedback training, and people will come in, and they haven't eaten all day. They're not hydrated. You know, oh, I'm hydrated. I had a cup of coffee this morning. Well, coffee's dehydrating. But they don't stop and think about what their brain needs to be able to perform. 
And if you're not food is food and sleep, that's to me that that's your two fundamental steps. Yes, absolutely. So how does sleep? Does sleep tie into an eating disorder? Uh, in several ways, yes. It, the, sleep could be very disordered for a person in the grip of their disease. And keep in mind, you know, as the body atrophies down, especially you know, for anorexics, they're going to be colded at night or then a fever might come and they might have the chills for uh, a person living in a larger bo body. They're going to have the same type of issues in reverse where they're hot all the time and they can't sleep as well. As the brain starts to atrophy with both though, there's a need to get more sleep because the, the body does everything it can to preserve itself, including growing hair on parts of the body to try to keep warmth in. As a person starts to atrophy, the body makes, you know, the body's this incredible machine that wants to live and does what it, 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 it can to preserve life. So again, there are just so many complications, but there is, Leo, there is help out there. We do know, we do know that. Well, let's talk about that. You know, let's talk about what's out there and and how people can get it. And because you you are doing fantastic work, and it doesn't sound like you're doing it alone. It sounds like you're getting organizations to support it. You know, so there is some goodness going on. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. The counselor, for many of the counselors who, who specialize in treating eating disorders, they are absolutely fabulous. And um, because Morgan saw mo most of them when she was around, I got to know most of them as well. And you've got counselors here in North Texas like uh, Susie Hare and Delisa Deutsch and Elizabeth Martin. Um, you get counselors like Krista Ketchum, who's employed at Girls to Women. They all recognize eating disorders. Orders and they're very open and they're not judgmental and they know what to look for. Uh, I, I've got, I have gotten to know the people at the Eating Recovery Center uh, based in Plano extremely well. In fact, I count uh, Stephanie Setliff now as, as, as a good friend. I've been in her house to dine before and she's been over here in, in ours as well. And this is, they, they opened a new facility in January in Plain off of Legacy and Preston Road that's, that has 100,000 square feet dedicated to treating eating disorders, everything from residential treatment programs to intensive outpatient programs. Um, can't say, so can't say enough good things about them, but... Moms and dads are an important part of the equation as well. They have to invest themselves in counseling with their uh, children or adolescents. They have to be there. They've got to do family-based ther therapy as well and uh, embrace that. 
Um, you know, we talked about AED and the incre incredible work that they do. There's also the um, International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, IAEDP, which might be the most awkward acronym out there, but uh, it's pronounced IADEP. And they are eating disorder professionals as well. You look them up on the internet and um, you'll be able to find professionals in your area. Um, Lynn, as part of the talk to Apple, I'm assembling not just national, but worldwide resources where people can go for help. I should have that finalized and up in the next two weeks. Well, you know, I have to because the event comes uh, at the end of this month. But there's going to be so many resources. I'll put it out there in public for people to uh, see and embrace. And Lee, I think the most important thing is moms and dads, if you think your, your, your child has an eating disorder, you need to talk to his or her teachers and counselors and pediatrician and doctors Educate yourself first and then ask questions and keep asking questions until their answers make sense. I, I can't emphasize that enough. You know, moms and dads, we, you know, we don't call it's It's basically the three C's of Al-Anon. We didn't cause the eating disorder. We ourselves can't cure, can't cure it. And for the most part, we can't control it. But by gosh, we can collaborate with treating doctors and teachers and counselors to have an incredible treating team. And your kid will get through th this, but you've got to be smart. You've got to educate yourself. You've got to have strength and you have to have faith. Well, you touched on such an important point because as a mom, anytime something went wrong, I caused it. If I hadn't have done this or if I had have done this, it wouldn't have happened. And I think that's so important for parents to know that they didn't cause it. It's not their fault. So, you know, that my one takeaway from this whole conversation is to please, parents, remember that you didn't cause it. Absolutely. And Lee, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, my email is Stephen with a V at dunlawfirm.net. That's D-U-N-N lawfirm.net. Um, I'm very responsive. I have the email up almost the whole time, and I'd be more than happy to talk to anyone to get them help. Was, That's a very generous offer. And one of the things, one of the, at the, the Morgan Foundation, others we say, you know, say is our goal is to save lives, one precious life at a time. And if I can prevent a mom or dad from going through this type of anguish and pain, then that also builds my daughter's le legacy. And even if there's somebody out there that thinks that, that, that it may be affecting them, can they reach out to you as well? Especially that, yes. Uh, I will be there with uh, open arms, talk as long as they need, and let's see if we can get you help as well because there, you know, there are some really good people out there. We just need to find them, embrace them, and 
have you talk with them. They can and they will save your life. Well, I can't thank you enough for the information that you shared. Your generous offer to be there to answer questions. Thank you, Stephen Dunn, very, very much for your time. Thank you, Lee. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify.